See, the eternality of hell, of eternal punishment, makes no sense if God is not holy and completely just, because otherwise he could just erase people. He could just say, I'll overlook that on the basis of Christ without having my wrath expended, which is why people suffer for eternity in hell, because even one offense is an infinite offense against a holy and just God. And so his anger is poured out forever in actual punishment. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the propitiary, the wrath-bearing sacrifice on your behalf. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Fascinating verse in Matthew eleven twelve: From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. I believe the best understanding of that text is those who have heard the truth of the gospel, having heard it through John the Baptist, and then having heard it through the king himself, are to pursue that, to take hold of the kingdom. It's here. I want to be in the kingdom. I will seek the kingdom. As they take it by force, as it were, that is a pursue entrance through the narrow gate in repentance and faith. It, it, is, it is a travesty when the gospel is presented something like this, you know, Jesus came and died for you and it's the easiest thing in the world. You just believe. Now, I agree with the second part of that statement. You just believe. But I will not accept the first part of that statement because scripture doesn't say, it's easy. It's not easy. Your whole life is being turned upside down. Everything you know and everything you dreamed, everything that you wanted is set aside. As you take up your cross, you deny yourself and you follow after Jesus. There's a counting the cost, a wrestle that happens. And yes, I understand that as God is working in your heart, he draws you towards that delight. I know that. And so it becomes, as you pursue him, it then becomes a joyful thing to repent and believe in that sense. But it is not easy. It is the overcoming of our sinful selves. It is a recognition of our sinfulness. All of this by the power of God, through the grace of God, by grace, through faith alone. The gate is narrow, said Jesus in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. What's the focus there? The focus isn't so much on God's election from before the beginning of time, which is a truth of Scripture, which is a reality of how salvation happens, that God has chosen from before the beginning of time. But on the human side, the emphasis of that passage is, find it. You need to find the narrow gate. Everybody starts essentially at the broad gate. The king is saying, as I am here, you need to find the narrow one. I'm presenting you with the truth. You seek it. You find that narrow gate. Let us never be caught in a reformed passivity. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel and the challenge of men to pursue Christ, 
even though we know and are firmly convinced from the truth of Scripture that it is God who we use the term monergistically, that is, He alone accomplishes that work. The gate is narrow, but it must be found. And so we urge men to find it. And by His grace, they may. The kingdom must be entered. And so I would be remiss if I didn't say right here, have you entered it? Have you, have you, have you taken the kingdom by storm, as it were? You have recognized your sinful nature. You have understood the nature of what Christ has done and you've pursued the king. That's what's necessary. Repent and believe. The gate is narrow. Well, what, what, how do we get in then? Why does it have to be entered through what means is it entered? What's the standard? The kingdom has a standard. It's not just anyone that can enter the kingdom. It certainly wasn't just any Jew. It's not any American. It's not any person born in a Christian home. It's not any member of Grace Community Church, right? You're in. You're a member of Grace Community Church. No. There's a standard. There's only certain people who enter into the kingdom. Now, I could pick many ways to describe this. I'm just going to pick two as a means of summing up what is necessary to enter into the kingdom. It is necessary to be humble. It is necessary to have humility. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spirit who recognizes that, and that spirit, inner man, mind, intellect, will, volition, emotions, really better word, affections. That is what I direct my passion towards through my will and my intellect. When I'm drawn towards my desire, when we recognize that we're bankrupt, that we don't have the intellectual capacity, that we can't choose God on our own, that we, that we are unable in our own willfulness. We would always choose sin when our affections are not rightly directed. We understand this. We recognize our sinfulness. That's repentance. We recognize that we cannot turn on our own and that nothing we have done is sufficient. When we are poor in spirit, we can enter into the kingdom of heaven and no man is humble on his own. No man bends the knee before a holy God without being taken there by God himself through the truth of his word and the power of the spirit. But it is absolutely essential. There's no one who walks into the kingdom and says, look, I'm here. Look what I've done. Look who I am. No, poor in spirit. I have nothing. I didn't desire you. On my own, I can't serve you. I can't honor you. Might you make me worthy. Might you forgive my sin. Might you grant me your spirit, that you enable me to be with you in eternity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then combined with that, these are not separate things in that sense. There must be a perfect righteousness. And by the way, this is what drives us to humility. Because as righteous as we would attempt to be, we could never achieve the perfect righteousness of a holy God. Matthew 5.20, For I say to you, says Jesus, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mind-blowing to the Jews of that time. The scribes and Pharisees appeared to be extremely righteous, not only seeming to obey the law, all the laws of the Old Testament, but adding 320 additional laws. Look how spiritual we are. And to say that you had to be more spiritual than the scribes and Pharisees would have seen an unattainable goal. How could we ever be more spiritual than our spiritual leaders? That's how they were viewed. Well, Jesus ups it in several verses, 28 more verses after that. He takes it up another notch. Already their, their, their ground is, is shaken. Their foundation is taken away. If the scribes and Pharisees can't get in, we can't be that righteous. Who can get in? Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You're done. You're done. 
And maybe the scribes and Pharisees maybe yet would have looked at that and said, we're there. We've obeyed the law. And it seems that they did. So I called him whitewashed tombs. So I comes after him with all guns blazing because they heard a, they heard a verse like that. And we, go, we're, we got it. Can you imagine the arrogance? And yet, and yet, so many that I speak to, although they wouldn't say that they are perfect as their heavenly father is perfect, they would change that simply to say, I'm not quite as perfect as he is, but he'll let me in because he's perfect, right? He's perfect in love and perfect in grace and, and he'll allow me in. No, this is the standard for the kingdom. And if the king does not hold his own standard, hear me carefully, then the kingdom isn't worth entering. Do you really want to enter the kingdom of one who claims to be righteous and claims to be holy and yet does not hold to a righteous and holy standard? Do you want to live forever with a being who violates his own character and nature on whim to allow certain people in and keep certain people out on the basis of his own whim rather than holding to his perfect standard. You don't want to live in that kingdom. You don't want to be underneath that king. You need a holy, just, and perfect king. And so he must and does maintain his perfect standard. So the kingdom has a standard. That's humility, being poor in spirit, and having perfect righteousness, neither of which any man can attain. So when Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it becomes an unattainable goal on your own. And yet he says, you must do this. The kingdom is here. Thirdly, and equally as shocking to the Jews and perhaps shocking to us, is that the king must be personally received. You see, the additional shocking understanding is that entrance into the kingdom requires a personal relationship with the king. The only way to enter is to receive the king himself. The only way to be rightly related to him is to change the course of your life into conformity with what he has commanded and who he truly is. The only way to receive the king is to agree with and meet the standard that the king requires in order to have a right relationship with him. You see, this is not like the immigration process. Well, I'll enter into this kingdom, I'll fill out my paperwork, I'll sneak across the border, maybe I won't, I'll forget the paperwork, I'll sneak, sneak across the border, I'll enter into the kingdom, and no one will know. Or maybe if I get the right paperwork in and I do the right things and it comes across the king's desk, he'll just rubber stamp it or one of his cronies will do that and I'm in the kingdom and I got in without having to really meet the king. No one enters the kingdom without a personal audience with the king. You all get a personal interview. And you sit down before the king as it were as he presents himself and he says, I'm the king and this is who I am and this is what I've done. This is my character and my nature. This is, how, uh, this is what I've done for you. Will you receive me? Will you enter into the kingdom on my terms? I'm the king. You don't set the terms. I do. And can you imagine sitting there at that interview? You're sitting before the king of kings, the king of the universe, not just the king of America, the president, we call him. Nothing like that. This is the king of the universe. And and you're sitting before him, if you could even look at him, which you couldn't. And he says, here's what I've done. Here's who I am. I'm holy and perfect and just. I can have no sin in my presence. And yet in order to make the way for you who are sinful, I have come and died for you. I've laid down my life for you. I was killed. I allowed myself to be killed by the very people I created. I rose again to conquer death. And I'm offering you entrance into the kingdom if you'll recognize your your abject sinfulness, my right to send you to eternal hell. And if you'll recognize my work alone is sufficient on your behalf and you will exclusively pledge yourself to my kingship, to my lordship. And you would look at him and say, you know, that sounds great, king. 
Man, I love what you have to offer. This is a great kingdom. You're looking around. This, this is a prosperous kingdom. What kind of you know, great inheritance to be got here? I'd love your eternal life. I'd love to live forever. I'd love to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. But I will not have you as my Lord. You can't rule me. I just want into your kingdom on my own terms. So I expect that you simply ought to let me in, king, because you know what? I've done some good stuff. I've, I've done a few things for your kingdom. Just let me in. I'll take all the good things that you have. I'll sift through them, and I'll get rid of anything that I don't like. And I want you to stamp my papers. Here they are. Give me the stamp. Let me in. I'm sorry, you have less than no chance. If he doesn't throw you out personally, right, he, you will be removed from his presence. You see, the king must be personally received. There's a personal response to him that is necessary, and it is on his terms, not yours. So by received, it's a good biblical word. Let's not throw good biblical words out the window. We don't receive the king. He dominates us. Yes, we receive the king to as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. This is biblical. But we do not receive. We, see, we think of the word received as, I want that. I'll take it. No, the king says, this is what I will give you on my terms. The king sets all the rules. Will you take it on the basis of what I have said and what I have done? So what is that? How will we do this? Again, this is a flip side of repentance. This is how we enter into the kingdom. When he says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the king. Mark chapter 1, Jesus says it a different way. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is that the king is here and his his kingdom is coming. So you must believe in the person and work of the king. You must believe it. Acts 16.31. When the Philippian jailer cries out, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas say this. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, all in your household who believe will be saved. Now, very fascinating if you continue reading on the next several verses. It says, then Paul and Silas went into the house and explained the way of the Lord. Very important and very fascinating phrase. Because simply to declare that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus, if people don't know what it means that he's Lord, they don't know who Jesus actually is, and they don't know what he's done, will not save anyone. And so Paul and Silas went into the house and said, this is who Jesus is. Remember, this is a pagan Philippian jailer, a pagan Roman maybe. He doesn't know who Jesus is, so they explain. That's the way to do it, believe in the Lord Jesus. But you have to know who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done. So what do you need to know? You need to know that he is God and man. Driving down 495, coming back from our camp. If you've ever done that, you drive down the beltway and carefully situated, completely purposefully from how they bought the land to how they, how they built the temple, there are these spires that rise into the sky with golden tips and an angel on the top blowing a trumpet. It's the Mormon tabernacle. Impressive in its glory. And yet, if you were to ask them, who is the Lord Jesus? Because they would tell you that you have to believe in the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. If you were to ask them who the Lord Jesus is, they would say, well, he's a created being. He's, he became a God. That's where you're supposed to go. He's the brother of Lucifer, and on and on. And if you want to have any discussion with them at all, you would simply start with this. Is the Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe, fully God, who became fully man, and therefore is able to accomplish our salvation? And any self-respecting or any Mormon who really knew what he was talking about would say, no, he's not that. In fact, that's heresy. Get out of my temple. That's what they would say. They reject that out of hand. And I wonder why we spend so much other time with, with cults and with other religions discussing things other than whether Jesus was fully God, because none of them believe that he is. 
Why talk about spirit babies and worlds and Book of Mormon? And, and you, you can discuss those things maybe as a way of entering into talking with those who don't believe in Jesus. But you just need to go here. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? Is he God come in the flesh? Because if he isn't, then we're, there's no discussion. He can't save you. There's no saving power found in one who is less than God. And so that's the point. That's the sticking point. But John 1, 1 is clear, regardless of how the Jehovah's Witnesses change the Bible or others refuse to believe it. There are other passages. I could read you hundreds of them. But here it is. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. End of story. If the Bible is not true, then what are we doing here anyway? If the Bible is true, it proclaims that he is God. All these debates, well, did Jesus think he was God? Did he actually say he was God? The Bible says he was God. And I understand that you can talk with people and work them through it, and you don't have to declare it quite. You should still declare it. But for the believer, there's no question. And you accept that, you believe that, but it must be fully embraced. Totally. I believe that. I'm patterning my life after that, as we will see. By the way, no clearer presentation of what it means that God is a trinity. Now, the Spirit's not mentioned there, but I'm merely speaking of the nature of who God is. In the beginning was, was the Word. He's eternally preexistent. He has to be God, not a created being. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Personality, a separate personality. There's God and there's the Word. But then the Word was God. He's one in essence. Separate in personality, one in essence, eternally preexistent, not a created being. There you have the groundwork for the trinity. The Spirit, then, we, we understand and we know to be also an individual personality of the same essence, and that's built through the rest of Scripture. But that's the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of the Trinity itself. He is God and man. If he isn't, he's not the Savior. If you don't believe it, you can't be saved. Now, you know this, but you should embrace this. I'm reading a great book on the deity of Christ. So like, why do you need to read a book on the deity of Christ? You're a pastor. You preach on the deity of Christ because it's sweet just moves through the New Testament thing, just item after item after item. He said he was God. He talked about being God. You know, he, he displayed the attributes of God and on and on. He was prayed to like God. He was worshiped like God. Just goes on overwhelming evidence. You ought to get the book. It's wonderful. And it's called The Deity of Christ. <laughs> uh, I'll have to get you. The, I forget the author. Actually, hang on. I'm going to tell you what it's called because I told you it was so great. I'll pull it up on my Kindle here. It's a nice thing about the iPad, because it's that, it's that good of a book, so I think you ought to read it. So let me, give you the, let me give you the title, since I said it was so good. It's coming. Putting Jesus in his place, the case for the deity of Christ. Robert Bowman, that's probably all you would need. Get it, read it. Sweet book. Get, read the Bible, that's sweeter, but the Bible's a sweet book. All right, back to, back to my sermon after the brief commercial. Jesus Christ is God and man. Jesus Christ is, oh, by the way, John 1.14, and the word became flesh. We need that part. He's fully God and fully man and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you don't believe this, you can't be saved because you believe it. And you embrace then what it means that he is the God-man. You can be saved and are saved if you have embraced these things. But let's move on. He's God and man. But we need to, that's his person, but we need to move to his work. You have to believe his work. You have to embrace his work. What is that? He is your propitiatory sacrifice. Say that five times fast. You're going, why are you using the word propitiatory? Can't, can't we say something else? No, the Bible uses the word propitiation. 
So I'm going to use it because you need to know it when you come across it in the New American Standard and the ESV and the New King James and the NIV. It says propitiation. What does it mean? Wrath-bearing sacrifice. He took the fullness of the wrath of God on your behalf. He emptied, he drained to the dregs the full wrath of a holy, infinitely powerful, just God. He took all of that wrath on your behalf. And he took it for everyone who would ever believe for all of time. This is what he did for you. This is what you must believe. Not simply an expiatory sacrifice that is just covered over sin, but a sin, but, but a sacrifice that was based upon the wrath of a just God against sin. It is, it does cover sin. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it does more. It satisfies the wrath of a holy God. We can't just appease God. It can't just be a covering over. All right, we won't see that sin anymore because of the sacrifice of Christ. No, because he's just, his wrath must be satisfied. He must be angry about sin or he isn't truly God. And that anger towards sin must be satisfied or otherwise he's not holy. Why do you think there's an eternal hell? See, the eternality of hell, of eternal punishment, makes no sense if God is not holy and completely just, because otherwise he could just erase people. He could just say, I'll overlook that on the basis of Christ without having my wrath expended which is why people suffer for eternity in hell, because even one offense is an infinite offense against a holy and just God. And so his anger is poured out forever in actual punishment. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the propitiary, the wrath-bearing sacrifice on your behalf. And that's next. Oh, you need a verse here. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified as a gift by his grace, to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. If it was good enough for the Romans, it's good enough for us. The word is a good one. And we need to understand it. It says this was to demonstrate his righteousness. You see, he has to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice or God isn't righteous. It says because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The context there is, why didn't everybody in the Old Testament, why didn't, why didn't God judge them? Because certainly the Sacrifice of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient. And so if he passed over their sacrifices and they're not burning in eternal hell, why? He's not just if he passed over the sins of Old Testament people. Well, he didn't pass them over, right? He only, he didn't pass them over eternally. He passed over them until the sacrifice of Christ, which cared for all sins past and present. He's your atoning sacrifice. You must believe this. That is that he did in fact make full payment. He suffered the wrath of God, and then he brought about through his own payment a full forgiveness of sins. He covered sins completely so that you are no longer viewed as having them. You have been set free. You have been bought back. Your price has been paid. It's a substitutionary atonement, a provision for your sinfulness and your penalty, Jesus dying in your place. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And in that atoning sacrifice, he not only covers over the penalty of your sin, taking that, providing the full payment for that penalty, he then provides you with his own righteousness so that the perfection of a holy God might be found in you, a perfection that isn't innately yours. We call it an alien righteousness. That is his righteousness. We call it imputed to your account. That is you are given what you did not deserve and what you cannot earn and what you do not have. The fullness of the righteousness of Christ placed 
to your account by the transaction of God's deeming it so on the basis of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and your belief in that sacrifice. He made him, says 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how you attain the perfection that is God is through the righteousness of Christ alone and not your own. He's the atoning sacrifice. He is the resurrection in the life. These are things you must believe about his person and work. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, this is Martha. You remember, Lazarus has died. And Jesus asked Martha, he goes, do you believe that Lazarus will rise again? And Martha says, yes, I believe he will rise again in the last day at the judgment. Affirm, by the way, solid existing belief in the resurrection, which many question. Well, Old Testament saints, which Martha was, they didn't, they didn't understand the resurrection. Yes, they did. Martha had an understanding of it at the last day. Then those who believe in God will rise again. And Jesus says to her, what? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Talk about a personal audience with the king. I'm the life. I provide victory over death. Martha, I'm going to be on the spot. Do you believe this? What, what, what do you if I start walking down through the audience? You know, Mark, do you believe this? You know, Lisa, do you believe this? Paul, do you believe? You know, right there in front. Well, he, the king himself. And one of the most powerful proclamations of, of, of Christ as Savior and Lord. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world, the Messiah, the Anointed One, my Lord, my Savior, God. No more powerful proclamation of the reality of salvation than that. Martha entered into the kingdom. Now, we don't know if it was at that point. Apparently, she said, I already believe this. But she was believing there can be no salvation if you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's a man who simply died, and even God who died, if you believe that, but he's, he stayed dead. He's not truly God, and he can't save you. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe that he conquered death, that in that payment for sin, he then made full and complete satisfaction to the Father and was raised from the dead to conquer life and to demonstrate the acceptance of that sacrifice by God himself. He is the one who provides life and the only one. So these are the things you are to believe about his person and his work. And you cannot enter the kingdom unless you believe them all. Well, I believe he died, but I don't believe he rose. No real bodily resurrection. That's what the liberals say. What is that? It's no salvation at all. I believe he died, but I don't think he was fully God. I believe he died, but he didn't take the wrath of God. There is no wrath of God. God is only love. All of these things are necessary for salvation. Complex? No. It's not complex. Easy? No. And able to be understood and able to be believed by the power of God. Submission to his lordship then is part and parcel to this belief in his person and work because as Martha so clearly proclaimed, he is the Lord. So this is together with an understanding of Jesus' person and work. If you are to truly be saved, you must submit to, really that's what it means to believe, to submit to his lordship. You come to him as your gracious master, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Now here again, let's be careful. Because in declaring the lordship of Christ, that there is a need to be in submission to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And really, it, it seems crazy that that would ever have been preached any other way. And yet that's what happens. That somehow God, can, Christ can be divided up. Well, there's a saving work and his lordship work. And I want a saving work, but I won't have him as my lord. It doesn't make any sense. He's always both savior and lord. 
And so we come to him recognizing that he is that. But let's be careful that we don't get out the lordship hammer and say, you better come to the Lord. He hates you. Quick, come underneath him so he'll love you. You guys, there's so many ways in which this can be twisted. He is Lord, and we are to submit to him as that. But listen to what Jesus said when he called the people to him, called people to him. He says this, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 11, 28, he also says this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not saying it's easy to believe in the sense that you know, giving up our lives is some easy thing. He's saying it is the best thing. It is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. And you will find that it is best when you come to him. And we proclaim this to people. It is not simply a physical weariness, physical circumstances, which cause us to, to feel the need for relief from those. It is an inner rest that is needed. It is a, a weariness and a, and, a, and a burdensome nature of sin in our hearts that we recognize that we need the rest that only God can provide. This can come through difficult circumstances. Talk to those who are fleeing from Syria, as Greg and Beth have ministered to. Broken in so many ways, and, 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 and in many ways able then to recognize their desperate need, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And yet what he is saying is that when you come to me, you will find that I am gentle and humble in heart. My lordship is that which is to be most valued. I am the greatest Lord, the gentle Lord, the humble Lord, as well as the mighty and powerful and awesome Lord. I am all of these things. And as you come under my yoke, as you take my yoke, and it is that, he directs, he rules, he's Lord, you will find rest, not burden. But what sin provides is a burdensome punishment unto eternal hell. What I provide is grace and strength and wisdom and life unto eternal relationship with God himself. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Would it be, or may it never be, that we present salvation with less gentleness and humility than Jesus did? We are strong in our presentation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are also gracious and gentle. Come to the king whose yoke is easy and burden is light. That is, in him you will find rest. As you humble yourself and recognize your sin and cling to him alone, we confess him or we come to him as gracious master and we confess him as mighty Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You've known those verses forever. And yet my prayer is that you didn't tune me out when I started reading them that you rejoiced in the thought that he is Lord, Master, Savior, King, the one who rightly rules and who provides a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light because he gives us rest, because we find our full satisfaction in him alone, saved from eternal hell, from death, by the very one who died and gave himself for us. Now we understand, we must understand, that this is not just a verbal proclamation. It is a true commitment. To truly believe those things is to give ourselves to them, to humble ourselves underneath them, to have Christ exclusively with no other gods and no other work on our own, and not merely to say it with our mouths, but that it is then demonstrated in our lives. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just a verbal proclamation of Lord, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That is the, the proper demonstration that you have 
fully and truly received his lordship. It isn't that you do those good works so that you can enter into the kingdom. It is the works that flow from your proclamation of Christ as Lord will give evidence to the reality of that proclamation. If he's your Lord, you do what he says. If he's changed your heart, then you live out of the nature that he has provided, that new nature. And if you don't, you don't know him. And when you stand before him, he says, you know what you skipped? You remember those people in Matthew 7? They said, we did great things in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things. He goes, here's something you skipped. You skipped the personal audience with me. I don't know you. You're an imposter. You thought you could get through with my stamping of the immigration papers. Maybe you went to church. Maybe you did these other things. You thought you'd slip through without a personal audience with me. I don't know you. Depart from me into eternal hell. You must come face to face with the king. And then you may, by his grace, fall upon your knees and confess him as Lord. And when you stand before him, then at the end of time, he will say, I know you. Enter into the joy of your master. So, two applications for you this morning. If you're an unbeliever this morning, and there may be those here even this morning who recognize, well, I've just been holding on to my, my, my pedigree as born in a Christian home, as reading the Bible, as, as knowing spiritual things. Well, I tell you this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand for you. It's near. Now's your time. Now's your moment. But if Christ returns again this moment, which he could, the fact that there would be a time lag gives us no understanding of how long Those who were in the New Testament, the apostles who wrote, were convinced that Jesus could come at that time, at any moment. He could still and will certainly come. He will come at a time when you do not know. And when he comes, the kingdom is no longer at hand. It's present and you're done. No more chances. So he could come. And if he does and you haven't received him as Lord, then you will bend the knee to him as Lord and go away to eternal hell. So repent and believe. But also for the unbeliever, you might not breathe another breath. The kingdom is near to you. It's now time. And when you die, the kingdom will be present for you, as it were. The kingdom of eternal judgment and hell. So I say, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. This is your time. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Not because this is some kind of pressure that if in a moment of emotion you don't do it now, you could never get saved. The issue is you need to know him now because the kingdom is near you now. And if you die or if he returns, it's no longer near, it's present, and you're done. Receive the Lord. He's the king. Repent and believe. Now for the believer, right, the kingdom is also at hand. But in essence for you, right, you're in it. It's no longer simply near you. You are in his kingdom. You are part of his kingdom. Colossians 1.12 is clear giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You're in. So start living like you're in the kingdom. There's a period of time. We won't get to the last part of your outline. Don't, don't fear. You're like, whoa, we're, never, we're not going there. We live in the, in the church part of the kingdom, as it were. The Lord is extending his work through the church, proclaiming the nature of his kingdom. It's coming near to those we proclaim it to, but we're in it and he'll one day come and finish it. And so live like a citizen of that kingdom, Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of that power which he has, even to subject all things to himself. The king is coming. You're in his kingdom. Live like it. Honor the king now in your life, in your words, in your thoughts. 
Oh, so many roaming around Washington, D.C., thinking they're in their kingdom, exerting their power, refusing to acknowledge the true king and accomplishing nothing. Vanity. Don't allow that vanity to creep into your life as a believer in any way. Instead, in every thought, action, word, pursue the principles of the kingdom through the word of God and the power of the spirit that you might live as a kingdom saint and you might draw others into that kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When we could never qualify, when we had nothing to offer, through your Son, you graciously provided and, 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 and made us worthy. Lord, I pray that we would live as saints of that kingdom, that we would proclaim the reality of this kingdom to others so they will not pursue their own kingdoms and live in vanity all of their lives. Lord, I pray that you would Grant us grace to look ahead to your return and live in light of it every moment so the things we do would be glorifying and honoring to you. And Lord, I do pray that if there's one here this morning who has not entered into your kingdom, perhaps believing that they were already in it for whatever reason, through good works or family experience, but that instead they would bend the knee to you this morning, that they would repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, that they might have this eternal life entering into your kingdom for the first time. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.